and welcome to History Now. On today's show, we're going to be discussing an important period of our history which still has strong resonance today, the Ulster Crisis of 1912-14. Joining me today are Professor Fergal McGarry, Professor of Modern Irish History at Queen's University Belfast, and Dr Graham Brownlow. Dr Brownlow is an economist and an economic historian at Queen's Management School. So, Fergal, if I go to you first, historian uh, Michael Hopkinson has said about the Home Rule crisis that that was the point of no return in a way, uh, in terms of nationalists um, almost going away from the idea of, of Home Rule towards uh, complete separation. Uh, would you subscribe to this uh, view? Yeah, it's like a variation of that argument, um, did, did, did the Ulster uh, Unionists bring the gun back into Irish politics? Um, it, it's, it's a difficult question to be very kind of um, forthright uh, and sure about. I mean, my sense is that what you see, even though it is a big crisis, 1912 to 14, it's a crisis that takes place in a particular kind of um, world, which is a kind of an imperial world. Um, you know, my guess is that you would have had some kind of resolution that would have left Ireland maybe with maybe for home rule, maybe something a little bit more ambitious, it would have evolved towards a kind of dominion status. But I think what's really crucial actually is what happens after the home rule crisis, which is the First World War. Because I think the First World War just, you know, in a sense, it kind of speeds up the decline of empire and you enter a new world, a kind of a, an age of self-determination, new republics emerging across Europe, 1918, 1919. So I think what's crucial about the 1912 to 14 context, even though it does see, see a kind of a, a wave of militarization and radicalism for Irish politics, that's very important. I think that what's crucial is it's still kind of taking part in a, in a sort of an imperial age. But it is crucial in terms of shifting the balance and giving separatists and republicans an opportunity to get back into the, the, the political picture. And if we can go to Graham, uh, your research you've looked at how the markets reacted and the depreciation of shares around the issues of home rule. In regards to that, do you think that was um, brought it to a point of no return for people who wanted to stay in the union? Yeah, I think the story about the empirical evidence surrounding share markets and home rule are quite interesting because what they show, uh, Charlie Hicks and John Turner have done the, the most spade work on this topic, they show that Ireland and Britain moved uh, in tandem from about 1870 to 1897 and then 1897 is the turning point. So up to 1897 shares increase in their database by about 50% and that's on a share price basis and on what's called a market capitalisation basis where you include the number of shares as well. So it all looks healthy for Britain and Ireland. But from 1897 onwards, uh, the Irish pattern diverges. Uh, and we can see statistically, it's not due to Irish economic uh, factors, nor is it the British economy. So something changes in 1897. What Charlie and John argue is they argue uh, that it's uh, redistribution and fear of redistribution that spooks the business community. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that what's happening, although we can argue about what the mechanisms were, that the business community, the more and more it becomes quite clear, the direction of travel is towards some kind of home rule, however defined, because I think it was quite vague in, in many regards. Uh, the business community was very worried, uh, and we can discuss wh what people thought that would entail. But I think that it's quite clear that uh, just the level of businesses that were had floated shares, yes, there was a lot of uncertainty. Of course, that's only a tiny fraction of all businesses, because of course those are railway companies and banks, for instance. There are lots of small businesses where investment decisions are affected by home rule, uh, and they're not measured in the empirical literature. And Fergal, if we can just go on to you, what do you think the um, the economic consequences were of Ireland's place within the empire? 
I think uh, um, what you have kind of by the late 19th century is you've sort of got two kind of Irish economies. You've got one part of Ireland in northeast Ulster, which has really benefited from industrialization, free trade, being part of an empire. Um, and then you've got another part of Ireland, the, the, the majority part of it in the south, which in a sense is the story of deindustrialization, de of a lack of kind of progress. And so you've got two kind of completely different narratives. I mean, you've got unionist politicians saying, just look at how successful Belfast has been. Uh, you know, it's, you'd have to be mad to argue there's an economic case for home rule. But then you've got, you know, nationalists by and large down south who are quite attracted by the idea of maybe bringing in tariff barriers and protectionism. Uh, and so it's really, it's, it's the, I think the economic kind of dimension is very important because it underpins to a certain extent the social and political differences between North and South. Perhaps now um, there isn't so much emphasis on the economics of it when, when um, talking about it now. At the time, um, were, were there many debates among nationalists um, about the economics of home rule? Yeah, I think the economics are important on both sides. I mean, if you see the, even if you look at the sort of the, uh, the ephemeral kind of propaganda, the postcards and so on, you'll see unionists envisage that Ireland, once home rule arrives, will be this kind of desolate kind of wasteland. You've got pictures of Belfast with statues falling down and so on. Um, so, so, uh, so, so for, and if you look at the Ulster Covenant, for example, they talk about there about the, the, it being a kind of a, a economic kind of uh, a crisis. So it's very important on the union side, but I think it's also, yeah, I think it's also important on the national side that it gives them a sort of another argument. I mean, the, the basic, the core nationalist argument about home rule really is that British rule has been bad for Ireland. Um, there isn't a sophisticated argument made about economically what will be different on the future. But if you take the basic premise that British rule has been bad for Ireland, whether it's the famine, whether it's issues around land, whether it's the, the kind of the, the, the poverty relative to Great Britain, then it's sort of a given that if you end British rule, well then Irish economic progress will follow. And it was one of the really difficult lessons that nationalists learned from the 1920s right up to 1950s and 60s was that actually that wasn't the case. It was, it was more complicated that the political structure of the active union didn't necessarily actually you know, frame the economic opportunities uh, in different parts of Ireland in that way. Yeah, and Graham, if we can go to you, there were some debate among leading, would we call them remainers? who emphasise the economic aspect of it. How, how widespread was this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, to note that in both groups of unionists and nationalists, there were nuanced economic arguments. So on the nationalist side, yes, the majority view within nationalism was that it would lead to a, a more prosperous Irish economy unconstrained by membership of the United Kingdom. But there was a minority view which actually said uh, that they were quite prepared for an economic damage to, to an a, a independent Ireland, but that was a price worth paying. On the unionist side, uh, the unionist side of course was tied up with the fact that a lot of their business interests, like linen, shipbuilding, was detached from Ireland. It was export-led. So it really, what was happening in Ireland, and shirt-making of course as well in the Northwest, we could place in that category, what was actually happening in Ireland wasn't so important, because what's happening in the background is the era of globalisation. From about 1870-1914 the world economy is getting globalised and a lot of what's happening within union, unionist economic thought is that backdrop of being part of empire and part of a world economy. Uh, so it isn't purely what's happened within Ireland. I think on the nationalist side because it's so tied in with domestic agriculture and small-scale retailing it's actually unaffected by that globalisation narrative and hence it's easy to be protectionist in that context because they're not affected by protectionism in the same way as shipbuilding or linen. 
I just add to Graeme's point about nuance is quite important because we tend to see uh, nationalist and unionist blocs as kind of monolithic and they're not, and particularly in this case, I mean, when we're talking about nationalists 1912, 1940, we're actually talking about home rulers. We're not talking about separatists or Republicans. We're, we're talking about people who want to have sort of self, an element of um, self-government with Ireland remaining, not just within the UK state, but also within the empire. And so you'll have nationalist politicians who, who, who will make speeches saying, well, actually, being in the empire is really good for us. I mean, the empire, for example, it's a really big source of employment. There's all sorts of opportunities, trading opportunities. So a, lot, so a lot of nationalists do, when they're looking towards the future, they're not conceiving a separate republic. You know, they're conceiving some kind of um, um, future in which Ireland will get some self-government, but also get the benefits of being part of, of the UK, but also uh, the empire. And by and large, I think most, you know, more... Um, developed more advanced nationalists probably didn't give a lot of time towards economics a lot of them to be honest didn't even give much time thinking about the state itself so one of the very few figures who's really <clears throat> thought about this is Arthur Griffith and Arthur Griffith does have a very distinctive kind of idea around protectionism and how Ireland can follow the model of other European states by breaking away but by and large I don't think those arguments were were arguments that that most nationalists gave a lot of thought to wherever on the on the spectrum they lay in terms of their, their you know their, their um, radical or conservative nature. There's a point that you made there that's very good and I want to pick up on is the fact that we think that there were two sort of large groups, armed groups, uh, facing off against one another. But in reality, that isn't the case. And Graham, you know, your research, you've looked at the, the Ulster Volunteers and what became the UVF at the time. And they were part, just a small part of a larger network. Can you perhaps tell us something about that? And just if among these groups there were any sort of conflicts of interest or any uh, you know what way they wanted to do things okay yeah i mean i think the way to understand uh the on the unionist side the resistance is we should not fall into the trap of thinking that the formal structures is how the actual groups operated i think what comes through the archival material when we look at that is that yes notionally you have a political leadership those unionists and notionally you have a military leadership. But in the middle of that, you have what's called the Executive Committee or Businessman's Committee, which acts as an intermediary. Um, and we shouldn't uh, ignore the fact that business leaders had a very important role to p running the unionist opposition to home rule. It wasn't political or military, it was a big business community involvement. Uh, and I think in terms of the UVF, it was a radically decentralized organization where basically uh, local, say, provisioning of rations or whatever was determined at a local level. Uniforms were very decentralised. The weaponry was very decentralised. The thing was very, a very decentralised organisation where I think if you take a very literal top-down view of the organisation, a high politics view, like an earlier generation of historians like ATQ Stewart, I think you miss how it actually operated on a day-to-day -day basis. And you certainly don't get an idea of how resources were actually allocated within the organisation, which as an economist would be my concern. And yet, Fergal, at just uh, that point yourself, the, the Irish volunteers are made up of a lot of different organisations, such as people who attached to the Gaelic League, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, and of course the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Was there much uh, conflict between these groups as, as to what way to go? Um, because we know there was a, a, a volunteer split uh, along with in the First World War, but in the early stages, was there um, general consensus of what way this organisation was going to go? It's a very complex picture because even if you're just to look at the, the, the militant end of the Irish Volunteers, the group who will go and produce the Easter Rising in 1916, 
I mean, even now you're looking at very different groups. You've got cultural nationalists, um, you know, into Catholic kind of intellectuals. You've got Republicans or separatists, and you've even, you know, you've got socialists. So, so e e even within that, that sort of maybe 10% that go on to form the, the more radical Irish volunteers, you've, you've got a, quite a range of kind of views. I think that maybe the best way to understand the Irish volunteers is there's, cert there's certainly an advanced nationalist faction clustered around the Irish Re Republican Brotherhood or Fenians. And they see the, the Irish volunteers as potentially being a future kind of insurrectionary army. Uh, they're quite a small group, but they're a very well organised group. And so the key figures in a lot of Irish volunteer com co companies around the country will quite often be connected to the IRB or to Nafina or to these kind of radical Republican groups. But a really important kind of group at, at this time is the Irish Parliamentary Party. And they're so kind of powerful, um, you know, wh while Home Rule is still a kind of a viable option, that they can literally sort of take over the Irish volunteers from above, which is something that they, they do in the, the summer of um, 1914. So maybe a, a good way to think about the Irish volunteers is that you've got a radical and a parliamentary faction both vying for control of what? What are they vying for control of? Popular nationalism. So most people in, in villages and towns and so on, they're joining the Irish Volunteers as a kind of a patriotic kind of thing to do. And also just, you know, it's not necessarily an ideological thing. It's get a uniform, get a gun, train, do stuff with your friends. It's a, you know, so, so militarism transcends, you know, from loyalism to socialist movements to nationalist movements. And so I think why the Ulster crisis is very important is because it's the Ulster crisis, that political crisis, which sees the Irish party kind of lose its grip over popular nationalism and hitherto pretty uninfluential groups like Republicans and Separatists actually gaining control of the Irish Volunteers, which crucially by 1914 is a mass movement, you know, 100,000 100, plus um, uh, members prior to the, the, the split. On something you mentioned earlier about the um, you know, uh, provisions and being decentralised, your research, you've looked at how guns were procured and they weren't necessarily um, distributed in what made military sense, but more at a local level of as the, who the benefactor was. Yeah, yeah. Can you an earlier generation of historians basically have either, on the one side, like ATQ Stewart highlighted how many weapons there were and been impressed. Another group of, sorry, nationalistic historians have been more critical. Uh, and then more recent historians have kind of said, uh, focus not just on the quantity, but the quality. Uh, but actually, when you look deeper empirically, so you break it up statistically and look at not just how many guns were available, but where the guns were allocated, the best guns, um, which are British or machine guns, for the most part are German or and, and less so Italian, are disproportionately allocated into Greater Belfast rather than to the border counties. And if you think militarily, it's quite possible that the front line might have been on what becomes the Northern Ireland border. Uh, then it, it seems unusual uh, militarily to have allocated the weapons so disproportionately to Greater Belfast. Why does it make sense? Uh, again, this is one of the areas where the archival materials are very patchy, but I think the most plausible story is a story whereby if you look at who's funding the UVF uh, and how the UVF is massively uh, political as well as business, I think that there's a lot of lobbying goes on and I think it's Greater Belfast comes out best. So I think where it was getting the best weaponry was reflective of the financial interests within the UVF and the political calculations where there was large Protestant majority. So from that point of view, it wasn't purely a military uh, decision, it was some other kind of decision, 
but we have to be very cautious because I'm afraid this is one of the areas where it's extremely fragmentary, the, the evidence, and I, 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 would, I wish it wasn't, but it's just fragmentary. And if we can bring you in there, Fergal, uh, in terms of guns which the Irish Volunteers procured, was there a similar um, situation where they had uh, benefactors who would purchase the guns for them, and were they landed where it made military sense? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, interesting to compare and contrast the two organisations because they're really very different. Uh, the Ulster unions have got friends in high places. They've got businessmen, industrialists. They've got fantastic connections with the army. So if you look at the, the, the people who are either training or advising the Ulster volunteers, it's, it's the British Army's most senior officers. It's people like Field Marshal Roberts, Sir Henry Wilson and so on. I mean, these are people who are incredibly powerful and well connected. Uh, there's now, no doubt, too, also that the Tories are either supporting the importing of... Um, arms to the Ulster Unionists in a, in a kind of a threatened rebellion to the British government, which if you think about it for a moment, is absolutely extraordinary. You know, it just shows you how, what, potentially what a crisis, the Ulster crisis was, not just in, in, in Ulster, but, 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 but for British politics itself. You know, there was, people were talking about the possibility of civil war. If you look on the other side, it's a completely different story, uh, I think, in terms of the Irish volunteers don't have wealthy backers. They don't have um, people who are, by and large, really skilled in training and so on. In fact, one of the reasons why people are a bit reticent to join the Irish volunteers, certainly until they become a kind of a mass movement in 1914, is because they get mocked. They're walking around with, wooden, with, with hurleys and so on. They're not seen as uh, being taken seriously. A lot of the guns that are brought in, for example, uh, uh, IPP, Irish Parliamentary Party supporters, bring in guns. But they're, they're called gas pipes and they're seen as just kind of symbolic. You know, it's just about having a gun for the credibility. So it's much more, I think, in terms of the Irish Front, is it's, it's, they're not really um, a, an effective military force. It's much more about the kind of the propaganda of militarism, which is very important. And the, the other thing that's really obvious comparing the two is how um, they kind of mimic each other. And to a certain extent, this goes back to the argument about did the Ulster Unionists bring the gun back into politics. The Ulster Unionists are again and again kind of... Um, um, uh, pressing the pace on this, like, you know, you probably wouldn't have an Irish Volunteers formed without the formation of the Ulster Volunteers when the Ulster Volunteers bring in guns uh, much more successfully than the Irish Volunteers, you know, do it. So, so that kind of uh, dynamic, I think, is hugely important as each side kind of upping the ante and uh, copying each other really to, to um, escalate tensions. Something that in my um, research on this topic is the Ulster Covenant. It wasn't just an Ulster thing. People signed it throughout Ireland. Isn't that the case? The way to think about the Covenant, uh, I would suggest it means different things to different people. I think the Covenant uh, for the Unionists is like a glue and a signal. So it's a glue with each other that they're all standing together. It's also used as a mechanism for membership of the UVF because you have to have been a signatory to the Covenant. But it's also a not unsubtle signal to the nationalist community that the unions are prepared by all means necessary to uh, resist the home rule. And that would be the way I would view it, that it, it's actually quite divisive. Uh, at the same time, it's actually cohesive. So it's a paradox about the nature of the society in Ireland, that there isn't an Irish society or Irishness. There's a variety of identities on a spectrum. Some people, as you see in the Covenant, are using the language of Britishness very confidently and, and, and without any apology and then of course the other extreme you have you know the spectrum of nationalisms with republicans denying any type of British identity so I think the covenant should be seen in that that mechanism or that process or that prism um, rather than I think going into the detail of each line what each line means because it's pretty clear that the overwhelming cultural beliefs 
that of about identity that tie the unionists at the time are primarily about politics and religion with economics in the background. Uh, but the economics is there, as we see in the Covenant. And in terms of people in the South, you know, there weren't vast numbers, but there were still numbers in different counties in the South. Yeah, I mean, it? I don't have the numbers right. I mean, there's significant numbers in, in, in Great Britain and significant numbers down south. And um, quite importantly, significant numbers in the three counties of Ulster, which will you know, be, be essentially um, uh, sacrificed a little bit um, further down the road. I mean, the Covenant itself, I think, is fascinating if you look at sort of what's happening in it. You've got a group of people who are, who are so loyal they're, they're so loyal to, 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 the, to the monarchy and to the UK that they're, they're willing to defy the British government um, to, to prove that kind of loyalty. So it gets you into really interesting arguments about well, what, what, what exactly are unionists or loyalists loyal to? And the language of the Covenant is very interesting. They're talking about like a, the present conspiracy. So they see what the Liberal government is trying to do as sort of uh, aligning itself with Irish nationalists to expel a loyal group of citizens from the UK not out of the UK, but essentially out of the, the, the state as it's kind of configured at that point. And they, they, they look around for precedence for that and, and can't really um, find any. Um, so that's kind of w w one aspect of the, the covenant, which I think is really interesting, gets you thinking a little bit about the, 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 the nature of loyalism and what loyalists um, are loyal to. I think the other thing that's really interesting about the Covenant is, you know, we kind of think of it as, as being very kind of militaristic and we associate it with the Ulster <coughs> Volunteers, but it's worth thinking about, well, what is the strategy? What are the tactics that are going on? And I think primarily the Unionist, Ulster Unionist campaign 1912 to 1914 is a really um, sophisticated, successful propaganda campaign. You know, it's a kind of the, the mobilization of Ulster Protestants in huge numbers. Uh, so it's primarily, it's, a, it's about making an argument that will be understood in Great Britain, across the British Empire, in the Dominions. And so it's not necessarily about actually creating an army which is intended to um, back a sort of a succession from the UK state. So if you look at people like Edward Carson, I think they're much clearer than maybe some other groups within loyalism who have a much more kind of militaristic and militant sense of what this, it, there's a kind of a lot of brinksmanship going on. It, they're, they're really making a point to the Liberal government saying, we're not just um, pretending. There, there will be a genuine constitutional and political crisis, maybe even a conflict, if you don't figure out how the Ulster question gets resolved as part of this, this wider set of negotiations about home rule. Was there any sort of comparative um, pledge that nationalists uh, signed up to in the Ulster or the Irish Volunteers? The Irish Volunteers one is tricky. There was a, a there, there was a pledge um, or a, a set of objectives as such, but interesting, they were kind of framed in a really kind of vague way because it goes back to the question of what do the Irish Volunteers want? So that the the objectives were about defending Ireland. So if you were a, a home ruler like an Irish Parliamentary Party member, you would have said, as well, we've got 150,000 members and they're supporting home rule because they're kind of defending Ireland. It's very kind of nebulous. If you're a separatist or a Republican, you think, well, defending Ireland actually means being willing to overthrow British rule. So the, the Irish volunteers, they're not Republican, they're not separatist, they're sort of vaguely aligned around this notion of the defence of Ireland, which is no one is really willing to define because they know that there's no real political agreement as to what the purpose of the organisation is. And as it turns out, only a tiny fraction of the Irish volunteers are actually separatists or Republicans and willing to, 
to fight for freedom. So in a sense, the Irish volunteers are best understood as, well, if, if Carson is going to strengthen his case with his own private army, well, then we're going to strengthen Redmond's case by giving him a kind of private army. And that's how you know, quite a few volunteers see it. But it's not how Republicans see it. Republicans see it as, at last, we've got our kind of embryonic insurrectionary force that we can use when the, when the, when the time is right. Just to finish off, we know that the um, advent of, of World War I uh, sort of put a pause on uh, the Ulster crisis. If World War I hadn't happened, probably in the counterfactual territory here, do you think civil war was inevitable between the Irish volunteers and the Ulster volunteers? I think what it certainly did, uh, the First World War, it certainly ended that period of Unionist resistance. It also, I think, sort of galvanised the Unionists that they saw what they could and couldn't organise. Um, in the absence of World War One, it's hard to know. I think probably would have ended up something quite similar. I think the, the, the tram lines were quite narrow, that it was pretty clear that there was different identities on the island, and how do you reconcile? Um, I think there were probably no good equilibriums, states of rest. There were probably just series of equilibriums, some which were better than others. And I think that what happens uh, is the unionist rising or home rule, anti-home rule movement uh, does galvanise the rising of 1916. But that would have happened in any case because that's where, where, where it was heading. It was pretty clear by the 1910s and much earlier actually that there were two groups that couldn't easily be reconciled within the constitutional architecture if you want to use that term. So I think if you want to think of it in terms of constitutional architecture, it was pretty clear that the constitutional architecture was creaky and the status quo couldn't hold. What would have happened militarily in the absence of the First World War, I don't pretend to know militarily. So I'll, I'll not, I'll just be able to go and say I don't believe in a stark left of building. And you, Fergal? It was very hard to think about anything um, without the First World War, because the First World War changes not just, um, changes the whole world, you know, and the sort of the, 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 the political world of the 20th century is configured by the first world. I think about fascism and communism. Um, if you think about even just the, the immediate post-war uh, period, think about the sort of the, the self-determination movements, the emergence of new republics, uh, the, the retreat of empire. So, all, so it's very hard to kind of think about things with, with, without that being it's so um, fundamental. But I think what we, what we can do is we can go back to the summer of 1914 and look what, what was happening and think about what people thought would happen. And I think if you're looking at the, um, for example, the, 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 um, the Buckingham um, uh, Palace uh, uh, conference that's taking place to sort of try and finally get a deal to the Home Rule legislation, which is kind of essentially being blocked by Ulster unions. I mean, they were literally, they had the map on the floor and they're, they're talking about where the line goes through Fermanagh and Tyrone. So I think it's kind of a, you know, pr pretty, pr in my opinion, pretty likely conflict would have been avoided, even though people were talking about the threat. I mean, the, the police were very alarmed about the threat of some kind of civil war or some kind of conflict breaking out in the, the border. The, the tempo was very high. But I think you're probably looking at some kind of home rule with partition. I think that's, I think that, that there's a general kind of acceptance of that. What would have that meant uh, going forward? I guess it just would have meant that, that the southern part of Ireland would have had a much slower evolution towards dominion status like, like Canada and South Africa and so on, which in itself would have been significant because it would have meant Ireland would have been kind of locked into the UK state for a significant period of time and then would have had a much slower evolution to uh, nationhood. I think the one group of people who are really shafted by the way things happen 
um, are Northern Catholics because you probably would have been looking at a six county state that would have remained part of the, the UK uh, in terms of direct rule. Rod, I mean, the, the one unexpected, I think, thing that emerges from the political crisis of this kind of uh, period is that you have um, a, a unionist government um, directly ruling the Northern Irish state. And that's, in many ways, that's a, that's, that's a disaster for uh, Northern Catholics, the minority. It's also, I think, it's, it cre it's very like the kind of problems you see in post-war Europe in the countries that fragment in the 20s and 30s, where you have um, basically um, a politics that are structured by sectarian and, and kind of sect ethno-nationalist divisions. So that's perhaps the one thing that, that you know, could have been avoided um, with a bit more forethought. Okay, Graham, Fergal, thanks very much for coming in. It was a great discussion. <laughs>